kicking today's pod off with a very minor spoiler warning. We don't usually discuss contemporary comics on the pod, but we do make some elusive but telling references to the latest issue of the Way of X series at around the 50 minute mark in this podcast. If you want to stay away from those in general, you can stop listening at that time, but giving you the warning up top. On with the episode. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 18, we're hung over from the last issue, partying it up when we're not experiencing unfathomable trauma in Excalibur number 17 from The Crucible, a captain. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils, Paul Neary on inks, Nelson Yomtov on colors, Jade Mode on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a round table where this fellowship shall meet, and a hall about the table, and a castle about the hall, and I will marry. And the land will have an heir. The wheel Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table. We've got a super fun guest who's super fond of Excalibur joining us this week, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your charming hosts. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write lots of stuff for lots of places, from the academic to the popular to the fan fictional. And sometimes I talk about things in university classrooms and on other podcasts, including Three Panel Contrast. Sadly, Kurt Wagner did not hire me to be his official PR manager after the last episode, but that just means I'm going to have to try even harder. Um, he's still naked for most of this one, so I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, Mav, if you want to say a couple of words about yourself I mean, my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav uh i'm a pop culture scholar comic scholar i i i host of another podcast called vox popcast and i had like this whole thing like really prepared to where i was going to like you know just sort of tie into this issue and do like a like an abc wide world of sports thing where i talked about the, <laughs> the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat and then like um just offline we started talking about you know the things that are making you unhappy about the current X universe. So I'm just going to stop now and just give us plenty of plenty of room because, you know, listeners, you're in for a treat today. Anna's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Liz and I both got uh, previews of the new way of X today, which will be out by the time this episode comes out. Uh -huh. So uh, we're, we're coming in hot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to, um, you know, some, some, there's some stuff to talk about. And mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. I am another co-host of Three Panel Contrast, and I spent most of my energy over this issue, which I really enjoyed trying to come up with a clever name about the fashion choices on this planet. And the best <laughs> I came up with was Planet of the Naked Flank, and it's not that good. And I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm kind of like, at first I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh. <laughs> I went yeah. through a lot of emotions there's, with that phrase. There's something missing there. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> 
We are joined, as I mentioned, by a very smart and funny guest who knows and loves Excalibur as well as anybody out there. The podcast is thrilled to welcome the one, the only, Liz Large. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Liz is a lifelong fan of mutants. She writes about Hellions, Dr. Afra, and New Mutants over at Comics XF and shares what she describes as somewhat less organized comics thoughts over on Twitter. She is also the co-author of the Comics XF Excalibur Primer with yours truly. So I know you know your Excalibur and I was so excited to have you on the pod and talk about it further. So as I said, I know you know your Excalibur, but what's kind of your X-Men history? You said you're a lifelong fan of mutants. So what's your X-Men origin? origin story, Liz. So as a kid, I had access to my uncle's old long box of Claremont era X-Men that was literally as old as I was. It was, you know, (laughs) uh, I was born in the 80s. The comics were from the 80s, but I loved them. And it was very easy to get into that era of comics back then because you could get a lot of them in quarter bins and I had no money. I was a child. So this was this was ideal. Could I read a new comic? Absolutely not. Could I read, you know, a dozen old comics? Yes. So I was obsessed with the X-Men and then I realized that my favorite X-Men had a different book that they were in. So that's how I found Excalibur. I never Wait, looked back. Which is your favorite X-Men? So it was definitely Kitty Pride when I was a kid. You know, uh, she okay. was a she was like a nerdy kind of weirdo. I v- very much related. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot of Kitty love on the podcast and I love having different people on like to kind of talk about kind of their affection for her, which is always really fun. Uh, so I you- was hoping she was going to throw us like this huge curveball and just be like, "No, obviously mimic." Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or the vanisher or something. I have heard through the grapevine, and it's not going to come up for like quite a while on the podcast that Liz might be somewhat of a fan of a Mr. Pete Wisdom. I have been oh, a no. Pride and Wisdom shipper since 1996, no. and I'm not going to change now. I am not going to change my bad opinion now. <laughs> I, I, I like Pete Wisdom. I I have issues with no, Pride and no. Wisdom, but I actually like the character Pete. So. <laughs> We're definitely going to have Liz on when we get yeah. to Pete Wisdom's stories to okay. uh, to defend him, and you can you can argue plenty with Andrew, and we'll keep that as like a, a year from now teaser for the time being. People are going to have to listen to the podcast. Um, so let's do our issue summary and just like get into it because I want to talk about first impressions and histories and all of these things. I described it a little bit earlier as a drunk issue, and uh, I think that's a little bit of what we're going on here today. So we'll see whether our conversation ends up mirroring that or not. So as always, a hearty thank you to the lovely listeners reading along with the pod who will hopefully forgive us for kicking things off as usual with this boring all plot summary. The issue opens, like the last one, with a hooded storyteller in a bar full of aliens telling us a tale about the glorious exploits of Excalibur. Basically, they recap the last issue and let us know what actually happened after the cliffhanger ending, which is Kurt throwing Rachel into the maw of the tentacle monster was a gooey but rousing success, after which everybody gets very drunk and a very long, very raucous party ensues. But Rachel is not feeling it. She sits apart, her phoenix powers seemingly drained by the effort of destroying the tentacle creature. Megan tries to comfort her, but Rachel jumps in a flying car and says she needs to be alone for a while. This isn't completely clear from the comic, but according to the Marvel Wiki summary of this issue, Rachel spends several weeks with that universe's version of Jean Grey, hanging out and trying on clothes and presumably doing other things, until tragedy strikes. The slavers that have been kept at bay by Angelou's strong-armed rule attack Rachel and Jean. Jean is killed and Rachel is captured. Rachel passes out and when she awakes, the slavers are preparing to have their way with her. She kills them dead with swords and escapes. Back at Kimri's newly freed city, Excalibur, who, the text reminds us, have been doing a lot of drinking, decide to host a tournament to choose a new planetary champion. Three contestants quickly rise to the top of the ranks. Kimri, the humanoid alternate universe Lockheed, and a mysterious masked woman, who Kitty immediately recognizes as obviously Rachel. Suddenly and seemingly randomly, Kitty, Kurt, and Brian are struck down and killed by some kind of MacGuffin energy ray. Suspicion falls on Rachel, but Alistair quickly recognizes her before he's also fatally stabbed. The assassin, who is working for the slavers, takes Megan hostage, but not for long. Rachel throws a sword that cleaves his head in two. At this point, Megan gets very mystical magical and says there's a way to save their friends. She persuades Rachel to embrace her phoenix powers, which she'd been subconsciously blocking. Using Megan as a conduit, Rachel restores the dormant world's spirit, bringing the world and their friends back to life. And everybody parties some more. Lockheed and Kimri take up the mantle of champions of the world, and Excalibur prepare to depart. Kitty reveals herself to be the storyteller, and they board the train. As the train departs, Kitty sees the star jammers and Professor X outside, but the train vanishes before she can stop it. Okay, so as I said, this is a bit of a weird issue even for Excalibur I often think this issue is just part of the Warlord one because the issue kind of bleeds into this one and this one has like a weird structure once again even for Excalibur Mm -hmm. where it feels like there are at least three mini stories that are actually super dense and important (laughs) 
And yet we spend most of the pages like in the cantina with the storyteller or at this endless party, which both opens and closes the issue. So as I said, it feels like the issue is kind of drunk um, and, and even <laughs> sort of admits that at a couple of points. Um, but that's enough talking for, for me. Let's start with you, Liz. First impressions of this issue, stuff that you kind of, well, like, I mean, do you have a memory of reading this issue the first time? Did you read it when you were a kid? Yeah. So I read this when I was a kid, along with the previous issue, Warlord. And mm-hmm. I got to say, I read Warlord a lot more times than I read this one. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. It's it's it doesn't this issue's doing a lot. I mean, obviously there's there's a lot of different things going on here, but it feels it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't none of these parts connect. It's very kind of thrown together. Is that how you felt when you read it back then? Or is that like sort of more you reflecting on it now, or can you kind of remember? I thought maybe I had missed an issue where Rachel met her mom because uh, yeah. that was something that felt like yeah. there's there should have been more there. Yeah. And like when I was reading the summary and it's like she spends three weeks with her, and I like was like looking back at the issue, and I'm like, where is that indicated that was not in the story but um it's clearly sometime Mm -hmm. so you you had three weeks which um i didn't think to check the wiki because like i've always wondered since i read this first 30 years ago how long was she gone and she's clearly with alternate universe gene for a while and that seems odd (laughs) <laughs> like yeah, it, it, it does seem odd that like nothing of any consequence happens and nobody goes looking for her. and the timing of this issue is weird even for the cross time caper it, it, it's weird and it seemed weird 30 years ago well i mean they introduced that though like there is that reference to like keep in mind they've been doing a lot of drinking no one knows when the party stopped or ended and i like almost am willing to forgive it on that level i'm like is that sort of a self-reflexive gesture but to work this very serious rachel story (laughs) into the middle of that is tough it's a bit tough i've done a lot of drinking you know i've even you know in my younger days there were even blackouts but weeks going by (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a magical world like where they're like drinking ambrosiers i don't know what's going on i'm like trying to give it like a little bit of benefit of the doubt possibly but i don't know whether i am in a generous mood or not so uh, i just want to make it clear i actually like this issue I, i'm not even yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> being like down on it but like i think like i mean getting back to you liz like i mean what kind of makes this issue kind of feel a little bit less compared to that warlord issue do you think i mean honestly i think part of it is the tournament arc it's like oh rachel shows up and we all know it's rachel but nobody's gonna say anything to her i mean <laughs> Kitty's a busybody. She would say something. Alistair's kind of nosy. Like, I feel like the two of them would be like, hey, what are you doing? You're, are you planning on staying here? Like, why are you engaging in this tournament? What's your plan? Well, it's like funny. It's like they don't want to hurt her feelings. So they're all just like, let Rachel have her little fantasy. It's fine. What about you, Andrew? What's your kind of feeling about this issue? Sort of things that stood out to you upon rereading? Well, first up, I just want to say, I, I really like what, what you had said. The idea that the structure feels a little bit drunk to sort of put you in that frame of mind. I think it works in that respect. Uh, and the other thing that I really wanted to flag, because w- we've talked a lot about the sexual symbolism in Excalibur, Brian has sex with a planet. Wait, like, what? He has sex with the planet. <laughs> Megan is surging with the entire repressed energy oh, longing for release. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. That's interesting and very Claremontian, quite frankly. He, he does a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah, no, so I, I thought that was strange and interesting, but again, sort of suits the, the Bacchanalia theme that mm-hmm. we might say this issue is revolving around. I mean, it was interesting. Like, this is definitely the most passionate embrace that Brian and Megan have had in Excalibur. I don't think there's any real debate there. I mean, did we buy this kiss? I felt like it wasn't really earned given everything, but we've kind of been complaining about that with Brian's character development for a while. Do we buy it? Um, I don't know. I, I personally still feel angry. anytime that relationship is romanticized but i don't know i I think they did a good job of megan maybe channeling lust toward brian rather than Mm. love and a desire for affection which is kind of her usual go-to like she's never expressed sexual attraction to brian she's only expressed this desperate longing need that he then exploits presumably for sexual purposes while cheating on her with courtney ross um so I, i think having megan have sexual agency in that scene is really cool um although at the same time it's still has that that sort of symbolism of dependency because she is the sort of avatar for the repressed energies of the entire planet. So a little bit of both, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I did like the idea sort of building from some of the convos we had back in the Excalibur number 15 combo about, you know, the Kurt, Megan, Brian love triangle and sort of queering that through Kurt's mm. drag performance and Brian's comment about it and their exchange there. I did like the idea that Brian is kind of entering these fantasy spaces of becoming like a little bit less repressed. And so I was like happy for him on that level. I was like, 
yeah, you get involved in this orgy, Brian. I want that for you. I really do. I really do. Brian's mostly inoffensive in this issue. I mean, like, yeah. he, he does nothing bad. I mean, I've never made a secret of the fact that I don't like Excalibur Brian at all. But, you know, he's mostly just kind of here. He's, you know, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> just, I have no real complaints for anything that he does during this entire issue. I did like how he gives that, you know, opening tournament speech and he's trying to be real serious. But oh, you can tell yeah. he doesn't know what he's doing. And even Megan's like, oh, you're so good at this. You're so great at being a, a pompous twit. I love it. I don't, they're having a tournament to crown a new Captain Britain, which apparently <laughs> is something Brian can do and always could. I mean, like, why do they even have this idea? It, it's completely unclear to me. And like why he has the authority to, you know, he's not in contact with the with the Captain Britain core here. He's just decided, you know, upon himself and everybody goes along with it. It's like, yeah, everybody fight for our amusement so that you can be Captain Britain. I know, but I can just imagine like a really good behind the scenes conversation where like <laughs> they're all sitting around and then it would be like Megan's like, tell them what you told me, Brian. And then like he tells them <laughs> and then Kurt just laughs. They think that that's him thinking it's a good idea. But he's really just like, no, that sounds hilarious. Let's do it. And then they like kind of get roped into doing this thing because I could totally see it happening. But yeah, I mean, that is, I will, that is the part where it notes them being super drunk too. So it's like the comic knows sure. this is a stupid idea. Sure. But when it ends, you know, they get cost. I mean, so is <laughs> yeah. he just, is he just like anointing somebody with the title of captain? Like, can I just decide Pretty that much. I'm going to have a tournament to decide who's the new Mav? Do I get to do that? And, uh, but because at <laughs> that the end, sounds amazing. So right. I mean, maybe, <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't know. I assume they got captain Britain powers because they have captain Britain costumes, but maybe they don't yeah. have the powers. But at the end, I just assume that they have the powers now. And if Brian can just do that and apparently, you know, grant captain Britain powers to two people, well, that, that leads to a lot of questions that like, I wonder why has he not been doing this ever since then? Because, you know, end all world hunger, like just make everybody a superhero. Why not? Because apparently he can. I wasn't personally under the impression that he did give them powers, but I could see how you would go there since that would make sense. Either that or he just gives them weird outfits, but like, you know, they're not really any weirder than what they wear anyway. So <laughs> I mean, I felt like there was just a weird thing going on where they're just like, okay, well, what this world needs is like stability and order. So they need some national heroes who are going to be sort of the leaders of that. And that's kind of what we're doing. Also, I've been rereading a bunch of Claremont's sort of return to X-Men stuff. And are you guys aware of the super dark things that happened to Kimri in later comics? No, I don't know much. I don't, I don't think I am much of her, of her history. It's really bad. This. Oh, no. Yeah. So Killian and his space pirates show up on this world um, and turn her into a hound slave, uh, a la Rachel. And that is what Ooh. happens to her. And she what briefly meets then? the X-Men again. Um, it's in, uh, sorry, just, uh, looked it up real quick. It is X-Men Volume 2, number 104 from, uh, September 2000, and it is Chris Claremont and Lino Francis Yu is where Kimri shows up again. That's where that storyline comes from. It's super weird because it's kind of an Excalibur reunion, like Megan and Brian are there, and then Nocturne is there as well. But yeah, it was super dark because when I was looking at upper stuff on the Marvel Wiki, it was like, oh, she shows up here. And I was like, what? I don't remember that at all. But it was just this thing where she just gets introduced and they just tell her super dark backstory and then she disappears again forever for no reason. But she was a hound and she, did she have Captain Britain powers or anything in that point? Or It doesn't seem like it, but okay. that wasn't explained. No. She doesn't. Well, I guess if she's not there enough, like hounds don't have a lot of agency. That's kind of the point. Anyway, let's get to something funner than that, which is talk about Kitty Pride's <laughs> role as storyteller, because this is a really drawn out kind of gimmick across the last issue into this one. We, we don't even get her revealed as the storyteller until the end of this issue. And I was curious about the decision to kind of place her in that role. I mean, Liz, she's your favorite. What do you think about Kitty as storyteller? It's not the first time she's told stories, right? We have the famous Kitty's fairy tale where she tells this story about actually maybe Andrew can I get you to talk about Kitty's fairy tale and then we'll come back to the Kitty story tell the things I know you did a really great thread about it oh yeah I'll just do it r really briefly so Kitty has to tell a bedtime story to Ilyana before she's aged up through limbo um, and it's, this is in the wake of the dark phoenix era so Kitty tells a story about all the X-Men having this sort of high fantasy adventure but it has really cool kind of like symbolic connections to the aftermath of the dark phoenix story
story and is ultimately used as a way to um, specifically reflect upon Cyclops's grief uh, and get him in touch with that because he's not famously good at getting in touch with his emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was a nice little kind of bit of parallel storytelling mm -hmm. um, and, and became, I would say, kind of famous slash infamous. Like there are people who adore it and it was also very hated by another side of the fan base. So it has this weird kind of place in X-Men continuity. And she also imagined an army of tiny Kurtz who are in love with her for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Who have had a long legacy in comics. So yeah, getting back to you, Liz, what do you think about Kitty in this role as like storyteller? Why do you think this comic uses this device? I mean, do you like this device is a good question as well. So I think it's interesting comparing it to Kitty's fairy tale because in Kitty's fairy tale, she's making up the story. And in this we're you know, obviously supposed to infer that she didn't. But in that one, she gives herself mm -hmm. a central role. She's, you know, mm -hmm. leading the pirate charge. She's having a great time, all these adventures, making friends. And then in this, she kind of at least from the story she's telling, she's very much on the outside. She's not really here for the party. You know, she kind of goes and puts her normal, well, normal for the X-Men. She puts her <laughs> regular uniform back on. She, you know, sits in the corner and tries to get Widget started back up. And, you know, she's kind of doing her own thing and like mocking Alistair's outfit because, you know, he kind of changes from his buttoned up outfit into <laughs> whatever it is that we would describe that outfit as. So I just think it's I think it's a very interesting change from, you know, I'm going to be the main character in this fun story I'm telling versus I'm going to tell a fun story. But like, I, I'm not really involved. Like, oh, yes, my friends got so drunk and it was so funny. But yeah. like, I was the reasonable <laughs> adult. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, that makes me wonder about that choice. I mean, yeah, because I mean, I was wondering, I mean, we're lit scholars. So I was like, do we have to talk about whether Kitty's a reliable narrator in this story or not? Because I mean, that's such a boring question. But at the same time, it's definitely playing with that. Certainly more interesting if she's not. It It is an odd choice that um, to me, I assume that she does this so as to take her off the board for the party because, you know, she's underage uh, and can't yeah, drink. Yeah. Except oh, yeah. that she's not under age and can't drink where she lives and also they're in another reality and also just because she changed into her, her x-men uniform for you know the five minutes that you saw her working on widget you just told me that apparently she's doing this for like three weeks or you know or more so <laughs> like and like we know that she changes back into her warrior goddess outfit later so can I ask a question about Nightcrawler's assessment at the end? I don't know who wants to field this, but like, do you think that specifically Kitty taking on the role of storyteller in this story is part of Nightcrawler's sort of looking at her as having matured? Like, does he see that role as being um, a symbol of her maturation? I mean, I was wondering about that. I don't feel like their interaction is really that much different from an interaction they might have had in the Kitty's fairy tale era. Although it's definitely yeah. an important scene in terms of just sort of establishing the bond between the characters. I mean, I really love the scene. The thing I hate about the scene is that Kurt's wonderful speech about their bond is in the panel where like Widget is exploding and everything. So it's really incongruous <laughs> and it really needed to be on its own in a quiet panel because I love that scene. And it would be like one of those scenes I, you know, share all the time and be like, oh, my heart. And yet it's all awkward because the text is like on two panels. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, I love, yeah, just again, that cementing of kind of their bond and kind of I loved the reference to her being afraid of him and kind of how far that they've come because that doesn't get brought mm -hmm. up very often and calling back to that is nice because you can forget that they haven't always had this kind of relationship because that can seem really far away in comics especially given what a defender of Kurt and you know great friend of Kurt that Kitty's become but yeah I don't know I'm happy if anybody else has thoughts about it I mean I just basically really like that scene and I like you know seeing them have kind of this little adult exchange and conversation although Kitty does still seem like a little bit of a kid in it you know her like making comments about like what a kid she used to be is totally something that somebody immature would say. <laughs> right but I'm okay with that it's the kind of thing that and we've talked about bunch about like um what age she's supposed to be i'm gonna say 15 i think probably she's supposed to be 16 even though she's supposed to she's gonna turn 15 again momentarily um <laughs> like in a, in, a, in a few episodes but i i'm okay with the older brother character you know having the conversation with the younger sister character of you've really come into your own you're you know you're really <laughs> a grown-up right now and like that's it makes sense it's the kind of conversation uh, i'm 13 years older than my sister it's the kind of conversation I might have had with her when she was 16 and I was 29. That is a reasonable thing that one might have. And like, you know, 
16 is an adult, but also kind of weirdly kiddish, right? Like she's likely to say yeah, stuff like, well, yeah. you know, when I was little, and <laughs> yeah, you, you are little. So then the, the other thing that complicates it, though, is based on their outfits and what's <laughs> happening, this is also where that other story happens. Yeah, I know. I know. Which... <laughs> so we've we've shared on our social before the Marvel Comics Presents story from 2019 that heavily implies romance between Kitty and Kurt, which, you know, we talked about before, but yeah, their ages at this point does not make that appropriate yeah right but also i mean it's clearly written to happen right after this issue yeah, yeah. to the mm -hmm. extent that i consider i mean it's non-canon it's not I, it makes no sense but if the same person wrote it and if claremont is thinking that their relationship builds off that it makes i don't know what he's trying to say i think he's trying to say that that kurt is acknowledging as he's done throughout this series you know he's very much he's he's very often we go back to the mojo mayhem episode where we talked about him talking to brian and saying no leave her alone let her do her thing kurt is very much acknowledging kitty as an equal throughout the course of x Caliber, which I appreciate because even though he's aware of, of the age difference, he didn't view her that way in X-Men. In mm -hmm. X-Men, it was always, you know, anytime that it was something about like her relationship with Colossus, you always had Kurt and Logan going, well, you know, she's still a kid, you know, you, you know, like there, there were, there was a lot of that. Right. And this is a, an acknowledgement of her as an adult in a, in a brotherly way. <laughs> like the context of it though they're just like strolling around in this place wearing these outfits <laughs> there's just something so funny to me about like i mean it's funny that kitty is wearing the outfit because she's put it on again which is like interesting but i mean <laughs> it's just to like the dynamic of kitty and kurt where it's like he's so like embarrassing you know <laughs> like he's like an embarrassing older brother the way he's like yeah i'm just walking around in short shorts like what and she's just like trained herself to not even look <laughs> I don't know. I just find that a funny dynamic, the outfits in this scene. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, did you like the kind of storytelling thing, Liz? Like, did you feel like it added something to the story in terms of like, because she gets to get some little jokes off, like at her teammates and stuff, even if we go back to the warlord issue where she's kind of like ribbing Kurt a little bit. Although I have questions about what Kurt told her about the interaction that she's able to relate this story. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I feel like I would believe that Rachel was like, yes, I spent this time with my mother and it was, you know, kind of ended really badly. But I don't know if Kurt is like yes and then and then this you know beautiful evil woman licked wine off of or I licked wine off of her like I'm not sure I know they have a very open relationship yeah. but I don't know about that no I mean as much as like I like to talk about him as a sex positive character he would never talk about that with somebody else and especially not Kitty yeah I don't think he kisses and tells you know he's respectful that's a conceit of he's first a person narration though right like I mean that's just always going to be you know, yeah. Like, literary yeah scholars anytime you do a first person narrator unless you are specifically playing on the fact that the first person narrator can't have certain information they often just do yeah for sure <laughs> they, they just have like oh how do you know that because the story needs to happen that's why i, I mean i was i was willing to let it go on that level but i mean i was wondering and i mean it sort of links back to something that you were bringing up andrew which is that you know to have kitty tell this story is she in the role of storyteller because she's this like kind of next generation x-man who's like almost the keeper of the mythology in a way because that reminds me of kitty's fairy tale as well where she's retelling the story of the phoenix and you know it even makes me think of the current x-men comics where they sort of have these things where they gather around fires and like sort of retell their history and kind of mythologize it. Like, is Kitty the mythologizer of the Excalibur story? I think she has to be. I don't think there's really anyone else who's up for the task. Yeah, who else would? Yeah. Yeah. And, and she's she's very much constructed, especially in the X-Men days, as the viewpoint character, right? Mm -hmm. So we're familiar with seeing the story through her eyes. So in that sense, there's a very natural kind of um, overlap here. Well, can I come back to you, Liz, and ask you like about Kitty Pride in Excalibur in general? If Kitty Pride's your favorite, like, what's your favorite Kitty Pride? Like, was it this series that you kind of glommed onto, or was it sort of like later ones or earlier ones? Uh, yeah, I'd say definitely this era of Excalibur. I mean, she's she's the youngest, and she's noticeably younger than everyone else, but she has such an adult role on the team. You know, no one here is supervising her. No one here is. She obviously is not going to school. Like, she yeah. is a kid, and you can relate to her on the level that she is a child, and she acts in childish ways. But also, you know, reading it, it's very much she has adult responsibilities, and you know, she has to save the day very often and I think that's really what her character is I mean yes even though even when she is a child she is still taking on responsibilities I don't think anyone is forcing her to mm -hmm. do this you know even though she is an X-Men I think she's able to take on that responsibility because she wants to because she gets angry she's a very angry character and I don't think 
not necessarily in this issue, but I think very often Excalibur, she's angry a lot. And I think that's a crucial part of her. I like that. I like that. We brought up her anger sort of a couple of times, but not like centrally. I mean, I like what you're saying about, is she identifiable then because she gets to like be in the space with the adults, with these adult responsibilities, but doesn't necessarily have like the obligations of adulthood. Mm. And I mean, even when she does have like, she's not in the romance area as much as some of the other characters. I mean, when you look at Megan, that's primarily her relationships to the other characters are primarily defined through Brian and Kurt sometimes and just kind of through that. And the same for Brian, you know, his primary relationship is through Megan and Kurt is romancing people and Rachel's kind of a special case, but very often, you know, she has admirers and things like that. Whereas with Kitty, you know, she has a schoolgirl crush on a lot of people, but for the most part, you know, she's not in that storyline. She's kind of doing a different track than some of the other characters. I mean, let's bring Rachel into the conversation because I really, like I say that like she's on the pod or something. That'd be great because I often don't know what she's thinking in Excalibur. But um, but yeah, like, I mean, in terms of that connection between Rachel and Kitty and what's going on with Kitty narrating Rachel's story here, because I thought that was interesting because I was sort of, and I know, you know, this is getting us back to the conceit of the narrator and everything, but I was honestly curious about which details of Rachel's past Kitty knows and whether Rachel would have talked with Kitty about those things or not. Rachel's very closed off and yet she has like revealed her past to them in the past. But I don't know. I was curious about kind of that dynamic and like why have Kitty tell Rachel's story in particular? I think, again, that might come down to the the who else could, right? Because th- yeah. there's a, nothing else. There's an implied intimacy between them uh, and even just the roommate thing. So there's a proximity thing there as well. But I really like sort of in hindsight, looking back at the issue and some of the small statements you mentioned about Rachel coming from Kitty specifically and just having Kitty reflect upon how Rachel is in some ways the core of the team, how Rachel's been through everything uh, and, and has this pain that nobody else can really see. I, I think that shows... The, the sort of other side of that intimacy that shows Kitty's understanding and empathy toward Rachel, a character who is often isolated because exactly as you said, Anna, people don't always know what she's thinking. Yeah. And then she's presented with this situation in which she can't feel what other people are thinking about in this particular story, which I want to talk about. I mean, I was interested in the presence of this recap page, though. Why do we have like a recap page of like Rachel's origin story set in the middle of this issue, which, you know, we're on Excalibur 17 by now. If you don't know who Rachel is by now, why are we doing a recap now? Yeah, I know at this era you know it was very much Chris Claremont you need to include a summary of every single character including (laughs) because they can't look it up on the internet yet so you know you need to have that summary in there but I think we could maybe have condensed it just a little bit I mean if you're like explaining (laughs) Dark Phoenix and the X-Men I mean I don't think we need all of that I mean we need it maybe because we got Alan Davis doing these like lovely like team portraits which I mean you know I gotta speak for my guy and like I love how we did Kurt his younger kind of like John Byrne looking self and then his total Excalibur self where he's got like his hair is kind of cleaned up and uh, it's just it's really excellent like I don't know how he did it like I've stared at it (laughs) and I'm like he's like sort of crouching and it's like he's got embarrassing 80s hair that he like fixed at some point to like it's still got like a perm going on or something but he's just it's cleaned up like a little bit and I just I really like that character modeling I really loved the parallelism on that page Mm. Uh, just creating the sense of Rachel going everywhere but not really getting anywhere because I think that's really essential to who she is as a character. Oh, that's profound, Andrew. I like that. <laughs> I'm like staring at it now and thinking about that. Okay, well, what about this Rachel story then? Like the first time I read this, I remember being like, what the hell? You just left? And yet I'm sympathetic to her more. I think rereading it, like knowing a little bit more about the character and everything that she's been through and everything and what she must be going through here. And yet, yeah, this was odd. This was odd. Like, I don't even know what to say about it beyond that. Like, I mean, what does this do for us? Do you think like as a character beat for Rachel? And I mean, I'll start with you, Liz because I'm always interested we have somebody new on the podcast who knows Excalibur really well. Like, what's kind of your read on Rachel as a character? Like, what in general do you feel like is her deal when she comes into Excalibur? Like, what are her motivations? We've talked about certain things in the past, like the pursuit of family, which is like certainly the case here. But I don't know. Any thoughts about our mysterious Rachel? Yeah, I definitely think she she wants a family. I think she feels very lonely all the time. And I mean, Mm. with that, I feel like a lot of the time she's very directionless. You know, she's kind of, she joins the team and she's here and she's participating in all of their adventures but sometimes it just she feels that she it doesn't feel like she's going anywhere she's here she's doing everything that she needs to do she's getting through the day but you know she runs off here she's trying to take some time away from the team she goes and finds her mom and it's not really her mom but that's an ongoing thing with her but mm-hmm. you know you know she she keeps <laughs> finding people and it's like yes are you my mother and they're not her mother oh. but 
close enough, you know. And it's, and it's sad. And for some reason, her mom here kind of, I thought, was rogue the first time I read it. Same. Oh, because of the white hair? Yeah. The white hair and, and the, the, and the, the accent? What is, Chris Claremont loves an accent, but what is uh-huh. this? I wouldn't dare to try to read it. I wouldn't. So, <laughs> so it, it's Gene. Okay, fine. And I feel like he's trying to do something with the Rachel story here that needs its own miniseries or something. Yeah. Because because Rachel gets to see Gene die here. And spoilers, she's going to get to see Gene die again in, I think, three issues. I'd have to count. But it's coming up. And she's seen Gene die before. And like Liz said, it, it's her mom, but it's not her mom. And, and I feel like there's more of a story happening that's just never resolved because it doesn't, it's not a solo story. Like there's too much Excalibur stuff going on to where Rachel never, I mean, to this day, Rachel has never really dealt with all of that trauma. That's like kind of part of the character. But in the arc of what Excalibur was trying to do, I don't think that ever really gets finished in a way. So she goes off to be with Jean. We don't know that she's going off to be with Jean. She just somehow meets her. She's going off to be by herself. And then she meets up with Jean. She spends some time with her, gets kidnapped and escapes and gets back. So you said she's with Jean for three weeks, but it's clearly longer than that because she's got to escape and get back and ingratiate herself into this tournament. So I don't know why she left in the first place other than to tell the story of her coming back. It's a weird thing going on with her that doesn't have a rationalization. It's interesting because Rachel's in interesting but like why did it happen i don't know why did she even lose her powers because really she was just self-repressing them and not self-repressing them is as easy as just megan telling her not to so the entire arc throughout this one issue because a lot happens to rachel in 22 pages and that art doesn't make a lot of sense it's just interesting because she's interesting i'm gonna take a stab at it and do like a charitable reading of it which is that it relates to the circularity of rachel you know it is just the same thing happening again and again and again and she runs away from the team and experiences that circularity and kind of what happens at the end is her embracing that power that she's been afraid of right I mean she has been repressing it and Megan brings it out and it's a terrifying level of power she can bring people back to life or they can together yeah they can together I mean it's one of those like mutant circuit things or something where like you know we this is like a thing that we can only do this one time in these specific conditions so we're never going to talk about it again but it's still a terrifying (laughs) amount of power right this has been a problem with Rachel throughout the series that she is basically this cosmic being who should be hanging out you know in space with like Adam Warlock or whatever and instead she's like here in Excalibur right and like how are we going to deal with this character and how are we going to humanize this character because she's also just a young woman who's very scared and traumatized and how are we going to balance these these different sides of her and so on the one hand I could see them doing that here a little bit like I think her kind of doubts and sort of emotions are very like affecting here I was much more affected by it the second time reading it than I was the first time when I was just like what the hell why did this happen <laughs> but like but still it's like I didn't know how I felt about the conclusion in terms of it feels like a turning point for Rachel you know that like something's going to be different from her afterwards but we don't really get to see the payoff of that right away and this is going to be sort of an ongoing thing with her where she be just becomes like more and more cosmic until she finally kind of leaves the team in sort of a very cosmic way but like I don't know that's my, that's my attempt to do something charitable with it <laughs> well it's also I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out how much how much do I want to spoil for future yeah for oh yeah future. I know. Because it's also, yes, that's happening, but we're also, we're running dangerously close to the point where Claremont's not going to be with us anymore. I know, I know. Book. So there are threads that are dropped yeah. and there are lessons that people have to learn multiple times. And they might, some some of which are Claremont making them learn them multiple times himself, but also just sometimes the new, the new authors, including Davis, because he will be one eventually, might not want the same direction. And so there are clear weirdnesses that go on, plus like what the Phoenix power actually ends up being in other X books at this time, you know, moving on from 1990, you know, all the way till 2021. It it does have to modify the story. So so there's greater world issues, I guess. I was going to say, I think the missing piece here is Days of Future Present, um, which which should be coming out in the annual soon. That's that's where Rachel and and Gene are resolved. um, Right. For the most part. Well, Um, Rachel and 616 Gene. 
Correct. Yes. The, yeah. yeah. Her, her feelings towards like maternity in general, I would say, yeah. uh, through Jean. Um, and then I don't know. Other than that, I agree with Anna. I, I think this was a way of establishing that the sort of all better Rachel that we are, you know, this flimsy veneer we're introduced to in, in early Excalibur. This was a way of bringing Rachel back from that and sort of revealing to the reader that no, she still suffers the same problems. But for, for me, the problem is that instead of like having an emotional eruption based on like, you know, reflecting or something like that, he just re triggered her by killing Jean in front of her again mm -hmm. uh, and, and doing the hound thing again. And to me, that was like kind of cheapening the depth of the emotion surrounding Rachel. I, I would rather have her sort of admit to herself in response to less dramatic stimuli that, that you know, she's still hurting. I, I think that would make a more interesting character beat. So is it going to be even worse in three weeks when she does literally that again? And that's what <laughs> King Guy again. Claremont wasn't <laughs> sure you were paying attention the first time. So. Yeah. <laughs> Kill her mother in front of her four times. Sure. Well, I mean, what do we, what do we make though of like, because I mean, this ties back to the last issue, right? Where Kitty does the ninja moves to like save them from the cuckoo's going to eat them, right? I mean, what do we make of like her having this thing of entering the tournament and doing this badass warrior lady thing like is this important do we care about this I, I mean I feel like it's kind of like so generic that I don't know how much I care about it other than you know she gets in some cool kills but I mean I don't really have a real strong feeling about it I kind of thought her superpower was being dramatic or extra <laughs> a little bit in, yeah. in that tournament so yeah no I, I feel like that was a little unnecessary and kind of silly and maybe again affected the the more powerful emotional notes of the story that I think he was going for I mean we have to say something about those boots like the boots where it's like one goes all the way up to the thigh and the other one is slouchy like around her calf and that's like the look it's like that in every scene yeah it's just hot yeah <laughs> i know yeah the, yeah the i mean everything when she comes back so even before that i also want to talk about you know you just said her powers being dramatic she slices the stone in half i that's not I, how swords work yeah i know you know i've taken sword fighting classes and i'm not saying i'm i'm not saying i'm an expert but i don't know how rachel became one either because you know kitty just said she couldn't fight before she had to copy those moves so yeah that um, me. yeah i i'm you know if she doesn't have her telekinesis unless she does have it and she just isn't you know if she's just not like directly repressing it that shouldn't work like you said that's not how swords work but yeah her her costume putting rachel in the sexy outfit is as much a reason for this story to happen as anything because i don't really i don't, I don't know why like you said why, when she comes back why doesn't she just say okay guys i'm back i went through some stuff i don't want to talk about it she's hiding from her friends for reasons that we never learn just because she cause. has to do it herself mav it's super important and it's super mature uh -huh. no it's because <laughs> we want to see the cool outfit that's why I, I'm, I'm i'm certain of it because like you said there's no you know kitty is like yeah it's clearly rachel it's obviously rachel everybody knows we're, we all know this right you know well let's talk about just like the party in general because like there's a lot of kind of like scenes and like little interplays and stuff that happen throughout this issue that i think are worth touching on and since it is like the majority of the issue and there's like a lot going on at this freaking happening. party there yeah. is a lot of sex happening and i want to talk about that because it is very interesting this is a super horny party um and <laughs> i don't know i almost just want to ask for like favorite moments from this party because there's like a number of different ones we can touch on i have like feelings about kurt at this party where like he's gone from being like i don't know what i said a lot about his sex positivity in the last issue and now he's just like kind of got harems of ladies serving him things and i don't know if that's my favorite thing um though i do like the sexual energy we can keep that up but um i don't know let's do some like favorite party moments and I'll, I'll give you first crack at it liz but we'll come back to you as many times as you would like particular moments from this party that you're anxious to unpack i like how um over the course of the issue you know in the first appearance we see that alistair is halfway into yes. appropriate outfit <laughs> for this world and then by the time we get into the last page he's you know fully shirtless he's acquired a cape i just i love that he's kind of let himself enjoy enjoy the party but he says it's for kimry too right i yeah. definitely want to talk about that kimry and alistair like encounter i like that she doesn't end up with kurt i think that's yeah kind of a swerve yeah. from where you would think it was going to go from the last issue i am very extremely happy that she didn't end up with kurt because i would not have liked that i agree because because they're blue it's the um, just there's a thing that happens just you know as a black person i would say in media particularly yeah, yeah. things you know group media if it's a superhero team or if it's just a high school movie right if there's two 
other characters like they're both black or they're both asian or they're both you know they're going to be a couple you know why because they're the only two black people at the school so obviously they're going to date right <laughs> they're um same thing as if there's two gay people at the school they're a couple you know that's yeah. how so you know i have yes, because... actually discussed that dynamic on nightcrawler fan forums yes that we're like we don't know how we feel when they give him a blue girlfriend because it sort of implies like only someone who else is blue would like be attracted and then it's like weird mm -hmm. and then like there's a lot of layers of stuff there and then there's the racialized aspect which you can't divorce even though it's like fantasy race and like yeah it raises questions so i am happy on that level yeah. as well too. but there are multiple blue people here so he doesn't feel limited to that you know it's like yes um there are blue people who exist in this world kurt can date one of them he can you know have a harem that includes them and one of them can date alistair and it's fine and they just throw in like a green girl too to like just yeah, like yeah, mix yeah, it yeah. up. <laughs> but like, let's talk about that like Alistair Kimry scene because like I will say, even the first time I read this comic, and I mean, I was not a child, I was like 27 when I read this for the first time, but the sex scene between Kimry and Alistair, that is a lot for like a code approved comic in any era. I mean, this is like a, I mean, did this strike everybody else as pretty darn explicit, like even for this book? Not by now. I mean, like when you, really? you know what, when I was reading, when I read it the first time, I mean, I mean, yes, they're clearly having sex, and um, this is 1990, and yeah, they're having they're having sex. And Excalibur has like gotten me used to the in a way that when Excalibur starts in '88, you know, it's it's a little tamer. We're also moving closer and closer to what I can only call an, an image world <laughs> in comics. Not necessarily the image comics has hasn't been found it yet, but like Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld are becoming very very powerful around now, and you're seeing more of this. Okay, yeah, but my argument for it is like this isn't in the image style. This is like a more no. naturalistic style Absolutely. that I think makes mm -hmm. it more explicit. And like yes. you can argue that the way that it's drawn, we're seeing penetration on panel, which I think um. makes it more explicit <laughs> than. Yeah, uh... well, I mean, no. I... <laughs> I'm you just... could definitely be. That's what we're seeing, no, given how it's. I, I, I'm. I'm quite certain we are. <laughs> I mean, I. I, I'm, well, I mean, I'm that makes it very we're... explicit compared to anything we've seen in this book before. I agree. I agree with you, and I. You know, I actually, obviously, from this show, I, I love Alan Davis's artwork. I agree with you. It's stylistically different, but I think that the code is relaxing, and the direct market is getting powerful enough that by the time we hit 1990, um, we are having more frequent sex in Marvel Comics. Peter Parker and Mary Jane are explicitly sexually active by the late 1980s, like 1988, 1990. They're having jokes about Venus butterflies <laughs> and like their sex life. You're you're showing pictures of, you know, Peter webbing her to the ceiling like in in lingerie where they're clearly, you know, having super sex in their comic. And I, I so I think I'm just just thinking back on it. I was reading Dazzler by now, you know, where sex was very clearly occurring so i think i was just more okay with it than i would have been even three or four years earlier i don't know i'm curious to hear other people's thoughts on it because like i find like this scene like very strikingly explicit i mean in terms of the pose in terms of the like shared nakedness you know like she's clearly straddling him he's clearly just lifting his his hand off of her naked breast like there's a lot going on here i mean other thoughts am i like just crazy for thinking this is that explicit i don't think i read it as that explicit when i first read it and then as soon as you said it and like this there's penetration on the panel i'm like ah oh, crap her hair she's is right. damp too <laughs> i mean there's dampness here which we didn't talk about kind of the dampness in like the warlord issue but there's definitely that going on there too right where they're like out of the mm -hmm. hot tub and then they're in the bed lounging and there's a dampness to kurt's hair and a messiness to her hair and like yeah, they're it, clearly having sex i mean yeah. i i do not disagree with you at all they're uh, alistair and kimry are clearly doing it in that panel and even in the next panel when they run on to see what's happened you can see alistair's kind of adjusting his loincloth yeah. Their pants, whatever those are, he's yeah. reattached. He's readjusting his outfit, so it's it's pretty clear, I guess, if you are an adult and not a child, he's probably just like, oh, it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been yeah. fifteen. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I encountered this at 27, I was just like, holy shit, like, that's a lot. But I mean, yeah, maybe this is like sort of the different points that we're like kind of encountering it at that's affecting us a little bit. I mean, Liz, thoughts on Alistair? I mean, you know. I don't want to like put you on the spot of as a defender of characters that some other people don't tend to like, but how do you feel about Alistair in this series? Because we haven't actually talked about him much, and this is like the most that we see of him. I mean, this is Excalibur probably up to this point. This is probably the most interesting he's ever been, right? I mean, yeah. no offense or to him be. or to any stands of him, but I mean, he's not. He has a much cooler sister. He he's around, yeah. but why? 
biasy around. Well, what do you feel about like the Rachel Kitty Alistair love triangle, which we complained about way back when? But I mean, is it convincing to you that Kitty Pride would be after this guy? I mean, I guess, I guess for lack of other options, right? I mean, she's in a house yeah. with Kurt, who's pretty clearly her brother-ish, and with Brian, who she just kind of doesn't seem to like that much. At least in the beginning, when she first meets him and starts living with him, she's kind of just like, "This man is a buffoon." So I get the vibe that you know he is the only young-ish man that she's interacting with on a regular basis and she's like yes I am 15 I am hormonal and I'm gonna have a crush on somebody yeah I like that it's sort of like he's the crush because he's available I feel like that is like the most compelling reading of the relationship and I can even spin that to be like that is pretty identifiable I mean she's gotta be in love with somebody I mean I'm probably talking about books that only I read there was um an innovation title that was a continuance of the original Lost in Space series um that i love it's so great um i i very it was um written by originally david campriati and then picked up by bill mooney who played will robinson in the original lost in space and he went on to come become a comic book writer and an actor he's in babylon 5 later but he he writes this you know this continuance of lost in space and in it you find out that penny robinson has a crush on don west her sister's boyfriend she knows it's wrong and why does she have a crush on don west because at the time in which the story is taking place she She's 16 years old and has been lost in space since she was 12. And there are no other, you know, every yeah. other every other male character she she knows is either an old man, Dr. Smith, or her literal relative. She's got her brother, <laughs> her father, an old man, and this guy who's 25, 30. So, you know, that's who I'm crushing on. So I guess. I mean, yeah. Any other like party moments that we want to highlight before we kind of move past it? I mean. I'm curious and just because I, I want to hear you, your complaints about. <laughs> the other thing that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode um you said you were you know you had a little bit of problems with how kurt is portrayed here you know you were sort of going both ways you know you like the sexualness of it but also just do you not like that he'd be in a i guess fivesome or <laughs> just just counting the pictures or is it more um that i would just be like type? yeah no i would just be like if he's going to be in a fivesome i mean you could make that a little bit more gender diverse surely to make it a little bit more interesting but uh i mean i don't know i just don't like that like convention of like a guy and five super identical hot ladies i mean that's not as interesting as it could be if we're going to go to that orgy place with it i expect that if davis drew it in 2021 the you might have seen a little more diversity like i i read this opening scene where you know he's got three women attending to him and then you know more show up so he's clearly having sex with multiple people and i read it as more of the boyhood fantasy that you know like you said i mean it is the boyhood fantasy of women are there to serve male gaze blah 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 and i don't know that the storyline would have really precluded that because obviously kimry is using alistair as a boy toy too so there are sexual options and they probably should have made it more diverse well but I mean it's just that we talked in the last in the last episode and I did a Claremont Red thread about this as well is that like part of what worked for me about kind of the gender and sexual content of the last issue is that Kurt plays into those tropes but also I don't know if I want to go as far as subvert them although I did use that word in Claremont Run just to you know sound smart um, but <laughs> or like to get people <laughs> reading because it's always like a fun sexy word to use but I mean but at the very least we talked about how his macho fantasies were like undercut by some of what happens there and you know the issue ends with him fighting side by side with Kim, with Kim Ree rather than having sex with her and then having, you know, everybody's life saved by Kitty, who's like Kurt's non-romantic best friend. I love him going to an orgy and having free sex and everything, but it just, it seems like a backtrack to have it be this type of sex in this type of way. Like, I mean, I'd rather he's like having sex with a cool warrior lady than just having a bunch of women like serving his grapes and being in positions as though they're his sex slave. Like, I mean, because then it's just we're falling back into the tropes that the last issue kind of at least tentatively subverted, right? where like Kurt has these macho fantasies but resists them on some level or is made to resist them even just made to resist them through the force of his difference and otherness which is going to always separate him from being able to fit those roles perfectly so I don't like him just sort of fitting the role a little bit too perfectly here I will say so then I'm wondering is it helped by the fact that Kimry does it too which is can can we read can we read it as okay so the thing here is Kimry and Kurt are both tops and the fighting's done so now they're both going to go find some buttons and she does and he does and Alistair is the bottom, right? And that's fine. Kimri, and- Kimri doesn't get a harem of men, though. She just gets Alistair. And 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 I disapprove. 
so big. Maybe she should have. <laughs> you know, like like I mean, I mean, it, like the story might have been even better if she should have, if she if she had. And well, um, she tr- she does slap Brian and like kind of try to go to that place with it, but of course he's not right. having that. Well, this and this ties into the thing that I you know I'm, I'm going to let you complain a little bit about as we record this in X Men comics in 2021, they're doing the Hellfire Gala, which has had tons of very obvious orgy stuff going on with varying gender combinations so it is more egalitarian so i think you would do it better in 2021 i know you have other problems with it that are that are unrelated but like but but no but i I mean i on mike on the episode not not gonna make you i'm I'm ignoring the part with the character that you have a problem with the very concept of what they're trying to do if you're like i think you can do this responsibly yeah no i'm not disagreeing i'm saying like i just feel like heart sick and actually physically sick like at the thought that Kurt fucking originated this and like now he's in the way of X comics like doing what he's doing as though that's his character I can't even I can't even I have no words no words he's clearly out of character in those (laughs) it makes no sense I mean in terms of like going to fantasy spaces and like having consequence free sex and like like he invented that that's the 85 Nightcrawler limited series which is the series that everyone goes back to in every Every single Kurt solo adventure other Mm. than the one comic in which he was a priest like which was four (laughs) issues like every single other solo adventure yes oh god okay he wasn't even technically a priest it was it was retconned as an illusion so that never happened and the reason he left the priesthood even before it was retconned as an illusion is because he liked sex too much and decided he (laughs) thinks that celibacy makes people evil which is what he says on panel the only good thing Chuck Austin ever did for me (laughs) what about she-ra there's just a lot sure i mean you can you can ascribe to him whatever you would like in terms of hurt things this is the one good thing he ever did for me was getting him out of that even though the storyline is terrible but still it's just like the idea that this character who's one of the most sex positive sexually libertine characters in the entire x-men universe who's like doing the burt reynolds pose on the couch for amanda to consume him but i mean especially when we think about these two issues of excalibur right like going back Mm -hmm. to the warlord issue and this issue which like you know we've had lovely comments sort of on our social and like various like places that we post our episodes talking about how important of a sexual character Kurt is for people. This is a sexual character that means a lot to people and to have him like to reduce him to a character defined by like misogynistic sexual shame like that's not just bad storytelling that is harmful to me. I I agree I've I say it as a joke on this show a lot because I just I just like phrasing it that way but I I keep saying that Excalibur comes out in 1988 as a way of teaching young Mav many things about himself, right? Like that's <laughs> like I keep saying that, but I, but I don't think I'm alone there. I think that this series, and in fact, I know just from the comments that we get on the on the blog, on the YouTube channel, on Twitter, from what we hear from our listeners, I know I'm not alone, right? So yeah. obviously, Kurt epitomizes that for you, and it is weird that they made that choice. I will say it's also hurt by the fact that, frankly, ignoring who the character was, the story was written poorly, in my opinion. Yeah, it, I just, it, I I there's a lot of levels of like to it. complain there, about. <laughs> yeah, there, I didn't like it, so. I, I know that, we, you know, we haven't written it up yet, but it'll be out by by the time this episode comes it, out. But the stuff serious. with, like, Loa and Mercury as well really deserves right. complaining about, because it's not in the purview of our podcast, we're not talking about it, but, like, yeah, we just mentioned that right. briefly. But, yeah, but I just, what I think our show... It, can do because you know we, we you know we always talk about why are people reading this series from 30 years ago we're we're rereading this again because i do think that so much of what is done with the sex positivity in this book with the fact that you can even if they don't go all the way there you can experiment with bisexuality you can experiment with polyamory you can have questioning queerness rather than just out there queerness in a way that was uncommon for 1989 i mean not uncommon in real life but uncommon for comics in 1989 and i think that's important so i do think that there are good reasons to like review this and compare it to questionable choices they might be making today yeah no kidding (laughs) do do you want do you want a chance to do any griping about i know you've read the issue as well liz i mean 
anything I say, I should not say. I mean, it's it's bad. It's if you're going to be writing a character with decades and decades of history saying one thing and then suddenly drastically change them, there should be a reason. It should be a good change. You know, if you want to take someone who's been a real jerk and maybe bring them into the modern day, that's fine. But if you want to take a character who's been good and who a lot of people love and then arbitrarily make them into a huge heel. Yes. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the heel turn, especially not for a character that's wonderful. Make somebody else a jerk. I don't care. Just an especially a jerk in this specific way. Anyway, go away. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, I was just going to say, I think if we look at the way that Claremont portrays Kurt's sexuality pretty consistently, one of the things that makes it remarkable is his commitment to create safe spaces for women to express their sex Positivity. Yes, 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 yes. And yeah. like part of that is the libertine fantasy. So he allows women to feel safe in like being this kind of doting, I don't know, submissive. But at the same time, he does the exact opposite with, as you said, with Amanda um, by creating a fantasy in which he is consumed. So there's a lot of ways in which his sexual appeal to particularly, I think, female readers, just because those are the, the proxies that we're seeing in the narrative, is in his commitment to just say, you know, um, whatever you find sexy, find sexy. It's happy it's fun it's beautiful kind of thing so to have him turn as you said anna and be a character who is now shaming women for their sexual desires and sexual practices that is clearly inconsistent with at least claremont's vision of the character I don't want to be dramatic, but it's like given that I talk about my feelings about the superhero genre being feminist sometimes, and I know it's an odd thing to say, but it's just that some of the liberation of bodies that we see in this genre at least has a lot of feminist potential. And there's a lot of feminist potential in a character like this that lends himself to the female gaze in ways that are unusual across media. Like this isn't just within superhero comics, this is unusual across media to see him do something like the Paul Smith, you know, pinup from 168. And like some of the things that we see in Excalibur as well you know the bathtub scenes the scenes with Megan like some of the stuff that we saw in the warlord issue that's unusual across media and I think you're absolutely right Andrew that it does welcome uh, like a female and I would say queer gaze as well but like again yeah. I'll, I'll say female just because that's my experience and yeah to do that turn with that character and like yeah we won't say too much about it because people probably mm-hmm. haven't read the issue or whatever but um yeah suffice might, to say we're not happy about it yeah, <laughs> yeah I know but you know still spoilers I mean it'll only be yeah. a few days we should note on perhaps a happier note that we had because <laughs> We're not we're usually recording like a few weeks ahead of time, so we don't have a chance to like comment on quote unquote contemporary events. But we had all the drama about Batman doesn't do that last week, and it took about a day <laughs> for like the son of Dave Cockrum to start circulating some drawings from his father's notebooks proving that Nightcrawler definitely does do that with Storm. And I got sent that by that? multiple people. Yeah, well, I know, obviously. <laughs> I got sent those by multiple people, so that was a fun day. You have a brand. The YouTube video not showing this. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, Liz, final thoughts about this issue, getting back to the topic at hand, things that you're desperate to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about before we started ranting about current comics, which is so far outside of our purview about our happy show about the past. Um, I think this issue's fun. I mean, do I understand all of the choices that were made? No, <laughs> but I don't need to. It's Excalibur. Why would I need to understand it? Um, I th- I just think it's a fun time. The team's dynamics are always good. And I like this issue less so than some of the other locations they go to in Cross Time Caper really doesn't do the mimicry of our world's versions of characters. You know, a lot of times they'll go and there'll be alternate kitties or alternate Kurtz. And, you know, very unlikely that we have those in this universe except for Lockheed, which is its own thing. And Gene. Yes. And yeah. Gene, who... Yeah. Is it Rogue? Is it Gene? I still I still don't believe it. <laughs> Ra- Rachel just found some lady and was like, you're my mom now. Yes. Yes. I know, because how that did that sense. go? Like, why would she just be like, yes, you can become my daughter now? It's very strange. And she didn't even have psychic powers to explain to her, no. like, here, here, read my mind. We're family. No, there's no psychic powers at play. <laughs> A very interesting conversation that is missing from this issue for sure. I guess Rachel didn't tell Kitty that part of the story. <laughs> the last thing we're going to do is just to do a little spotlight on the Sword Storks Letters page because we got a couple of good ones for you here. So I'm going to start with um, this is from Megan Fans Everywhere, address withheld by request. It's me. Dear- <laughs> Secretly, Andrew. <laughs> Dear Swordstrokes, Captain Britain, Captain Britton, noun, a character in Excalibur, a.k.a. Brian Braddock, too. So they're doing a little definition here. Looks a little bit better on paper than it does reading it out. Two, a slime bucket, scum, someone who possesses no backbone, creep, jerk, dirtbag. Three, one who is boorish, drunken, conceited, overbearing, cruel, and unoriginal. Unoriginal? I mean, that's harsh. 
Four, a pig, swine, worm, lower than, rat, slug. Five, an insensitive, thoughtless, selfish, shallow person. Slang, banana mush brain, Captain Callus, a typical man, bonehead, wonder wimp, doorknob, Mr. Underprepared, costume wise, pencil neck, pea brain, stinky, dead meat, and then just swearing. <laughs> so, Megan fans everywhere, one opinion. And then we have a second opinion, which is supposed to be a counter opinion, but seems to me a little bit like the same. This is from Scott Cohen, also address withheld. Dear Marvel, I object to the sentiment in recent letters regarding making Captain Britain more heroic. I am tired of heroes being cut out of the Captain America mold and appreciate Captain Britain because he is Marvel's only male bimbo superhero. If anything, play up his idiosyncrasies. By the way, I know he works out and all, but given the amount of alcohol he consumes, shouldn't his costume be getting a little bit tight around the midsection? Thinking of all the fun Rachel and Kitty would have teasing him about love handles. Keep up the great work. Terry Cavanaugh tries to pass this off as competing opinions, but I kind of feel feel like fans that of Megan everywhere and Scott Cohen would yeah <laughs> maybe they could they could team up and kind of form a mega society I, I think they're I mean I don't I think they're in opposition I more on Scott's side because I I hate Brian but I like Brian being broken yeah. Yeah. when written correctly when written correctly broken brian is very interesting agree yeah yeah i agree we've talked about how we like complaining about him on the pod so if we didn't have him here to make fun of what else would we do with ourselves i was not born to live a man's life but to be the stuff of future memory the fellowship was a brief beginning a fair time that cannot be forgotten and because it will not be forgotten that fair time may come again. We will wrap things up there. But Liz, anything you would like to plug for our listeners? Hype your Comics XF work. Hype your Twitter. Hype whatever you want to hype. Yeah, so I write at Comics XF. I do monthly columns on Hellions, New Mutants, and Dr. Afra. I also occasionally do articles on other things as they come up. And I tweet at Lizbeth Ann on Twitter. Uh, they're usually not quite as good as an edited article that I work hard on, but they are funny <laughs> and they are about comics. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners would appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And indulging us in some griping as well. <laughs> Completely justified. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 19, discussing Excalibur 18, Wild Wild Wheels, featuring more cross-time caper and no Alan Davis, but some experimentation with manga style, which we will expertly unpack with the help of an awesomely amazing guest. We learned a lot, and we think you will too. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest, for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another raucous conversation thank you liz for competing in our little tournament thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought music for our truly epic theme song play us out 